This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. My guest today is Sarah Muir, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the City College of New York and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We'll be talking about her book, Routine Crisis, an Ethnography of Disillusion, published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you very much, Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. What sparked your interest in economic and linguistic anthropology, and how did these interests lead you to an ethnography of disillusion in Argentina? So, you know, I was an, I was an anthropology major as an undergraduate, and uh, so I've been sort of interested in anthropology of all sorts for quite a long time now and have always from the beginning been interested in the way anthropology offers a space to bring together um, engagements with concrete empirical things in the world and with social theory and philosophy and for doing that in a way that isn't about kind of applying models or labeling things but that is dialectical and dynamic and that allows each of those sides to, to shape and be shaped by, by the other. Um, and I, I didn't know that I, what I exactly I wanted to do after college, but ended up spending some time in Argentina and became really interested in Argentina as, as a place, um, in large part because it's a place where history and social geography and race and capitalism all play out in ways that relative to the U.S. are kind of uncanny, deeply familiar in some ways, and yet decidedly different at the same time. Um, And so I decided that I wanted to do my Ph.D. in anthropology in Argentina, um, interested in questions about what work there could tell us about capitalist modernity, about politics, about historical transformation. Um, But beyond that, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to to research. Um, And I started my PhD in 2001, 
right at a moment when the country's economy was spiraling into a real catastrophe with levels of poverty and malnutrition and unemployment that were completely unprecedented in the country. Um, And so, you know, I've long been interested in this question of how social systems manage to somehow endure and cohere despite rampant injustice. Uh, the question of like, you know, where's the revolution? And so this context of like 2001, Argentina seemed like a kind of ideal place to think about some of those questions. So that's how I ended up sort of locating my work there. Um, And I was lucky to be studying anthropology at the University of Chicago at a time when the place was just full of conversations about these kinds of issues. And these questions and conversations were really stretching across sociocultural and linguistic anthropology. It was a moment where it was incredibly exciting intellectually to see how these two different subfields could be in deep conversation with one another um, in ways that offered you as a researcher, as like a, you know, a a researcher in training, a really exciting, robust methodological and theoretical toolkit um, for thinking about uh, issues um, and drawing from paradigms from both sociocultural and and linguistic anthropology. Um, And, you know, I guess, you know, given the kind of context, it's obvious why I ended up needing to think a lot about economic anthropology, you know, like this context in Argentina is a moment where the kind of old substantivist economic anthropological question of like, how do people materially make their livings and make their lives and make their social worlds was radically uncertain, um, right? It was also a, a moment in which the kind of more Marxian questions of capitalism in crisis, where all of these things were like obviously super relevant. Um, and yeah, and so that's sort of how I, more or less, I think how I ended up drawing on, um, on those kind of broad literatures, those broad approaches. Um, and especially, I thought, I found it just especially productive to bring um, linguistic anthropological approaches to questions of signification into conversation with economic anthropology because the kind of um, world of linguistic anthropology that I was being introduced to at Chicago at that moment was one in which the kind of pat wrote distinction between language and practice or discourse and reality was completely exploded where those those kinds of distinctions were rendered nonsensical and not analytically useful in ways that may opened up just incredibly um the possibility for really incredibly powerful analyses of the kinds of questions about economic and political everyday life that i wanted to think about um, so yeah, does that answer does that answer your question? No, of course. And I really love how you weave together how these questions emerge from the ground up, but also through um, your intellectual trajectory and particular moments in the institutions where you've been. So that's very helpful. And I want to follow up on 
you know, your emphasis on bringing the economic together with the linguistic. So to me, the book really stood out because routine crisis does not necessarily trace the afterword of crisis as an event, but it tracks the continual remaking of an afterword of crisis. And I borrow from you and your wonderful formulation. So what is at stake for you in this shift from afterword to afterword? Yeah, so, um, um, you know, one of the things that, that I was really interested in um, with this project is um, opening up the way we think about events. Um, and I think what, what that shift does, or what I hope it does, is make clear the importance uh, of not thinking of events as something that are self-evident, that we don't know ahead of time what an event is, um, that they events get constituted, they get bounded, they get recognized through context-specific, situated social interactions, right? And so what counts as an event for whom, with what implications, is something that is always at least potentially unstable and something that is made and remade over, over time. Um, and that is important to me because I think it is a way of, um, because for one, it's a way of opening up the, the scholarly work of tracking empirically how something becomes an event and for whom and with what sort of implications. and. Politically, it also introduces um, and kind of foregrounds the fact that all of that can change over time, that the political upshot of something like a financial crisis is not um, ever permanently settled, that things can be recontextualized in a way that open, that reopen up what seemed like bounded events and render them available for new political interventions, new political interpretations, new political inspirations. Um, so that is a lot of what I wanted to kind of emphasize in, in, in that shift. And as part of that shift, wanted to emphasize the way that these processes are fully material, right? But they are material in a way that is also completely about interpretation, signification, right? That, that, that marries those kind of two, those two dimensions of thinking about event, history, transformation that are often kind of separated in, in many traditions. Yeah, I think that really comes across and, you know, maybe a little bit more on, you know, what events do politically or reframing events in these way do politically. No, you really open up my eyes to negativity as a productive force. And that comes from an anthropologist who's really invested in the future and its liberatory possibilities. But no, you really show that negativity becomes a way to reframe events in some ways. So can you speak to how Argentinians engage the future through different forms of negativity? And maybe, you know, what becomes of events in this case? Yeah, I mean, so I would want to be really careful in how in, in how to, to answer, because I don't think I can really say 
how Argentines in general, yeah, you know, engage the <laughs> future through different forms of negativity. Because I think, at least, you know, the way I I tried to be very careful in the book at at making very, you know, but being really careful to not overdraw the argument um, beyond the fact that the particular kind of, so I wanted to bound <laughs> the, the object of study in a particular <laughs> way, because I think there is, there was something really remarkable and interesting about the way that the middle class in Buenos Aires in these years immediately following this crisis engaged with the future and experienced um, uh, modes of negativity in everyday life. Um, and so, I mean, just looking there for a moment, I thought, you know, uh, these, you know, these are, this is, these are people living in a social world in which so much had been destroyed, right? Where in which futures had been so radically foreshortened, which the question of even how to constitute the present was so, you know, radically uncertain and, and, um, uh, anxiety inducing, um, and, you know, in some ways and from some perspectives, there was a liberatory potential to that uncertainty, right? To the fact that so much had been destroyed, that there was a sense that there are new future horizons that maybe we can catch a glimmer of or that we can build. Um, so there's a way in which this was a place and a moment in which that kind of negativity, that kind of destruction did seem to open up the possibility for experiments like barter clubs and neighborhood assemblies and reclaimed factories and, and political you know, protest movements. Um, and at the same time, it was very interesting and sobering to see that for most people, those experiments seem to peter out very quickly and people seem to lose that sense of an, a more expansive, open-ended set of possibilities very, very quickly. Um, and so, you know, as I was trying to kind of think about these things, I became really deeply indebted to um, Nancy Munn's work on value in, in Gala. And she has this very, what I found to just be a very, very helpful formulation for thinking about the relationship between negativity and productivity as a kind of ongoing dialectic in social life on the one hand, and on the other hand of trying to carve out a space for really acknowledging and reckoning analytically with what she calls radical negativity. Um, and she describes radical negativity as dynamics in which society kind of consumes itself, destroys itself from the inside out, a kind of negativity that escapes this dialectic of the productive and the negative, uh, but is sort of self-cannibalizing. Um, and I found that really provocative and really helpful as something to hold on to as I was thinking about, about things in this very different context and, you know, this very different political economy, very different historical moment, very different social and cultural context, but still it, it seemed really, really useful to me. Um, and, it, you know, I've, along the way, I come to think that there's something that that approach to radical negativity that Mann develops is something that has a lot in common with, you know, James Siegel's rather 
Derridian approach it to, to witch hunts in East Java, for example, to work by people like Adorno, but also others in the Frankfurt School who are trying to figure out how to how you make sense of, you know, the kind of spectacular and libidinal violence of fascism and of, of world war um, and, and others too. And so this is something that I found um, ironically very productive to, to think with. Um, uh, so, you know, circling back to this kind of world of the, the post-crisis Buenos Aires middle class, um, you know, there is, as I talk about in the book, there's this, there was this kind of overwhelming sense of, of disillusion of the, the idea that there's no future in Argentina, this sense of a kind of radical negativity that we have done this to ourselves. We have destroyed ourselves. We have destroyed the very possibility of a future for ourselves. And I wanted to um, find a way to do justice to that like viscerally felt experience and also to unearth the ways that I think that experience tended to undercut and paralyze even the most diligent attempts to seize the openings that the, this crisis had, had created, uh, tended to undercut the sense that one might be able to build a better, more just future right out of, out of this rubble. Um, so I tried to kind of somehow find a way to hold those those things together on the page, even though they pull in somewhat different, maybe even contradictory directions. Um, because that's kind of what, at the end of the day, what I think I, I saw ethnographically in that time and place. And, you know, I, I get people often ask me about the kind of what has unfolded since then. And I think there are many, many different dynamics in terms of futurity and disillusion and hope and negativity and radical negativity that aren't present at all in the book because I don't think they were of at least readily available at the moment that the book is about that I think I would have to revisit and take, and, and, and re, I, I think I would need to revisit and think through much more carefully how my analysis would change were I, to go back to the question of event, were I to expand the boundedness of the object of study and think about not just this post-crisis period of 2003 to 2007, but a much longer, say, 20-year arc that I would now, that I now have, that I, I think I'm kind of now needing to do, right? To, to write a different book that's about the 20-year 20, 20 arc that would throw open these questions in new kinds of ways. And I'm not sure yet the answer to that and how I would do that, but it's something I'm um, increasingly feeling I, I, I need to do and that I should do. Yeah, I really enjoy, you know, how you're so transparent with us, with, you know, sort of the plasticity of where you choose to bound things, either, you know, temporally or through class versus, you know, you choose to not bound objects like events and so on. So it's, I, I'm really enjoying hearing how you think. And um, for me, you know, what you mentioned about sort of this experimentation and sort of no future kind of discourse pulling in different ways. For me, repetition was something that really grounded um, these different directions. Um, and in the book, you show us that your middle class interlocutors take crisis as a repetition and repetition frames their critiques of the past and the future. So 
What can we glean about the middle class by paying attention to repetition and critique? And you know, what is specifically middle class about it? Yeah. So, um, so I think like there are kind of two different ways maybe that I should come at that question. Um, but like well, the one has to do with maybe like middle classness and how that has been sort of theorized. And then the other has to do with this question of like repetition and crisis and time. And I think, and then how they're related. So, you know, in the scholarly literature, kind of across disciplines, largely, um, like the middle class is usually um, either like the very familiar middle class of European, Euro-American kind of um, industrial economies that um, that has you know a particular kind of position in the global political economy, political you know p- particular position with respect to the histories of colonialism, settler colonialism, and so on. Right. So there's a, that literature on middle class, and then there's this you know other literature on the so-called like new middle classes, um, usually located you know in in somewhere in the global south and form in former colonies often that kind of emerge in the 1980s, 1990s, um, out of a society that was far more, previously far more stratified, right, in terms of kind of rich and poor. But what's interesting is that, you know, for in both of those literatures, middle classness is uh, usually um, experienced, talked about, as very future oriented, right? To be middle class is to work toward hope for a better future for your children, to be oriented toward the idea that it's possible to have greater prosperity, both at the level of your yourself or your family, but also of the nation. Um, whereas, and I think this is no longer as exceptional as it was 20 years ago, but whereas in the Argentine case, what's kind of immediately apparent is that middle classness is not about that future orientation at all, but about an orientation toward a past in which that future orientation used to exist, right? And how that is kind of definitively gone. And I think, you know, um, in many places, in many other places in the world, we can begin to see that also as a, maybe a new defining characteristic of what it is to be middle class in, in other locations as well. But I think Argentina is kind of paradigmatic um, of that. Um, so, so with that on like one hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, this question of, um, you know, crisis as repetition, you know, um, that idea, that kind of critical insight that what capitalism is, is repeated crisis was always supposed to be a counterintuitive, revolutionary, critical insight that if we could really glean it and hold on to it, it would allow us to see capitalism for what it is and to uh, move toward undoing it, right? Um, and again, I think the Argentine case is a, is paradigmatic of a place where these things are sort of upended, where the idea that crisis is repetition is obvious, commonsensical, widely held, uh, and not particularly revolutionary. <laughs> um, 
and so uh, I wanted, so I guess, yeah, I thought kind of bringing those two things together um, was important for, was important to me for figuring out how to talk about the ways that something like critique, something like really sophisticated, theoretically informed, scholarly informed, self-reflexive critique, critique that looks very much like the kind of work we scholars try to produce and that we value so much, the way that that could have a social life that um, that did not kind of empower people or spur the imagination uh, toward new kinds of futures again, but was a, a kind of critical practice, a kind of discursive practice that often ended up as an alibi, to function as an alibi, to function as an um, as a reason for not reimagining how we distribute resources, for example, or reimagining the way we structure a political system, for example, um, because it was a because it can be a mode of critique that that in certain circumstances produces such a profound sense of of um, of disillusion and of faded, um, inescapable, uh, the, in, the inescapable, inescapable machinery of capitalism or something. Um, and so in that context, you know, and I think about this a lot too, in our own context of like roughly middle-class academic life in that context, I think, uh, um, I think that the this mode of critique, which is not to say all modes of critique, but this mode of critique can paradoxically reinscribe middle class distinction, reinscribe the very forms of hierarchy that we are lamenting and critis and critiquing rather than um, supply the kinds of insights that we would need to actually undo them. Um, This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I really appreciate, you know, you both framing um, framing how you think through the book so nicely, but also bringing it back to uh, maybe closer to home. So I really appreciated that. Um, and, you know, your 
insightful thinking about critique comes from the meticulous attention you pay to what people say and the words they use. And this made me curious about the role of listening and conversing. I feel like, you know, to write such a book, you know, things like listening or speaking take on a different role, maybe more so than another kind of book project. So how did listening and conversation figure into your ethnographic practice? Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And, you know, for this, I'm just totally, completely indebted to, you know, my professors at Chicago who taught me how to think about listening and, and speaking in a totally new way that um, uh, really opened opened things up for me um, in ways that I found really, you know, exciting analytically. Um and I kind of get to go back to something I said, like very maybe in reply to one of maybe your first question, you know, I really, you know, learned there to think about um, listening and talking as absolutely fundamental and central modes of social practice, um, which in some ways is, is completely obvious. And yet there are so many uh, methodological traditions that would lead us away from that kind, taking seriously that kind of that kind of insight and really following through on what the uh, you know, implications of that are. And so, um, I think that especially I'm so grateful to have had that, uh, especially for this project because you know Buenos Aires really is a place where people take seriously conversation and they do a lot of it. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a place where uh, people um, really value uh, kind of ongoing conversation and daily life where they take seriously the ways in which we, we talk and listen and what that means for who we are and how we're related to one another and um, what we can do together or not do together. Um, and so being attuned to that, I think, was really just, you know, invaluable to me. Um, and so I guess, like, from the beginning of the actual ethnographic research, I was kind of primed to be paying very close attention both to how people talk and listen to one another and also to me and how I the ways I talk and listen and, you know, um, are part and parcel of the ethnographic object that I'm describing and analyzing, right? Because, um, you know, yes, yeah, sometimes I write about or analyze about something I overheard where I'm not really a participant, right? Like an argument, you know, in public or something. But many of the times what I'm writing about is an interaction that is co-constructed, right? Between me and you know, someone I'm talking to or interacting with. And, um, really it being as it finally attuned as, as possible to how that dialogic interaction unfolded over time and how seemingly tiny or trivial components of it helped do a lot of work in nailing down what is it that we just did together? What is it that was just said? Or what is it that, you know, our relationship just became? Or, you know, did I, how is it that I just became, you know, um, you know, 
a, a, a token of the United States? Or how is it that the person I'm speaking to just rendered themselves, you know, a kind of the paradigmatic example of Argentineness or something, right? So feel like working to pay attention to those kinds of things, I found um, incredibly helpful. I don't know. I can't imagine what this, what the research or what the book would have looked like if I hadn't been lucky enough to have that kind of training. Um, it would have been really different. Yeah, it would have been really different. I don't know. I can't, I can't think my way, I can't think my way out of or prior to the way that that really transformed my, the way I think about, about things and the way I do anthropology. <laughs> so. Yeah, of course. And on that note, this might come across as odd, but I also love the appendix. <laughs> so oh, I'm so there. glad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. And this will this will sound kind of weird, but um, yeah. In the appendix, you provide us with transcripts, and you really, you know, draw our attention to what words people emphasize, where people pause, how people say things, and so on. So. Can you tell us about the methodological choice to include not just what people say, but how people say things? Yeah. So um, this is, of course, like not something I invented, right? Linguistic anthropologists have always um, made certain that their work has transcripts because, you know, a transcript doesn't capture no mode of transcribing captures everything about an interaction, right? But um, putting, you know, and then figuring out what you want to include and what you don't in a, you know, in a transcript is, of course, you know, complicated methodological decision that, you know, um, one could always have done differently. But regardless of what one includes in the transcript, having a transcript available for the reader who is so inclined, I think... Um, you know, it does a couple of things. Like one, you know, for the reader who wants to, it gives them the chance to really go back and track in more detail what I'm asserting happened and to maybe like, you know, question like, you know, did that really happen or not? And to see in the kind of material you know, um, transcript to see what it can otherwise, you know, in one's description of it, what can otherwise seem rather, um, I know sometimes unconvincing or sometimes rather abstract to be able to see it unfold in more detail than one, than one can. And when it's sort of described in analytic prose. Um, and so I wanted to, to be able to do that and to be able to offer that additional, kind of window onto some of my ethnographic material. Um, but I also, it was really important to me to write this book in a way that would be legible to folks who don't have a background in linguistic anthropology. Um, uh, because I think very often linguistic anthropology has a reputation for being really impenetrable. There's, there's often a lot of, you know, technical vocabulary that that we use to describe things and so I tried to move as much of that as I could into um, just pointing toward it in footnotes and tried to and put the transcript as an appendix because I know that not every reader wants to wade through 
wants to wade through that. And so I tried to sort of split the difference of both speaking to my linguistic anthropological colleagues, but also speaking to my colleagues who, who, um, who find, who, you know, who are not as familiar with that, those approaches, that, that terminology with, you know, how to read transcripts or what have you. So to somehow kind of contain both of those possibilities in the book. So that's why I really, I really wanted the appendix, but I, I also put it like as an appendix and not in the, <laughs> in the chapter itself. Yeah, as someone who's not as familiar <laughs> with linguistic anthropology, I think that um, really worked. So <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the appendix and the footnotes. Um, something else that I appreciated in the book was your attunement to not just what people say, but what they do during everyday encounters. And with that, I specifically have in mind the part about the line at hypermercados and how people wade through them. So what was in your methodological toolkit as you attended to how crisis makes people act in the everyday? I think, I don't know how satisfying an answer this will be, but I think, to be honest, more than anything else, my my way of kind of gathering, so, you know, I don't have, I did not have in this research project like a single field site, right? It, I really analyze material drawn from lots of different encounters across the cityscape with lots of different kinds of people, lots of different, you know, genres and modes and registers and, and so on. And um, uh, I, I guess the, the, the way, like methodologically, I chose those um, is not be, by having ahead of time a set of sites or social types or genres of discourse or what have you that I wanted to analyze, but instead to attend to, no matter where it popped up, the ways in which people were orienting themselves to crisis um, or decidedly not orienting themselves to crisis. So that became the sort of the trigger for whether something seemed like it was speaking to the research questions that I was pursuing or, or not so much, whether something was sort of receding into the background as an interaction. Um, and so really, you know, trying to be really careful to pick up on the signs of that orientation, whether it came through something explicit, like, ah, oh, we're always in crisis, or something, some commentary, or something very much more implicit that might be even, you know, embodied or, or worn on, you know, in the, in the clothes or, um, or evident in the choice of one brand of yogurt or another, right? Um, so I try, you know, at whether you know, explicit or implicit or discursive or bodily or whatever, I try, that was the sort of what I tried to follow. Um, uh, so I didn't know ahead of time necessarily if going to the supermarket that day was going to be <laughs> just, you know, get, getting my yeah. olive oil <laughs> and my tomatoes, or if it was going to be like what ended up becoming like a really like important moment for me in, in the book. Right. Um, so I, I guess in that sense, you know, it's a, in, in some ways a kind of very old fashioned ethnographic methodology, right. Um, uh, 
where you don't necessarily know your variables ahead of time, you know, um, and just try to be alive to what people are indicating is important, however they're indicating that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I think in some ways, to me, it's the beauty of ethnography. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of yeah. remaining open. Um, so we've been talking about different orientations to the future, and I thought it might be fitting to end this conversation by discussing what the future holds for you. So what is next <laughs> for you? What are you researching, reading, teaching next? Um. It's always so terrifying to talk about what you're working on. <laughs> um, almost as terrifying as like talking about what you've published. I don't know which is worse. Um, I, uh, I'm try- so I'm, I am trying to work on a project now that um, will likely incorporate some material that I've gathered from the four-year period that the book is about but that is mostly with to the extent that it does we'll be situating that within this like longer 20 some year arc again in in buenos aires um in a kind of middle class social world uh to think about to revisit some questions that as i kind of indicated earlier i think i I, I think I stand behind my analysis of, of that time that I think look differently within this kind of longer historical arc. Um, and specifically to think about uh, the social life, the political life of economic numbers. So I'm looking, kind of taking as my, my object of observation, the ways things like say inflation rates get talked about in everyday life, get plopped down in a Twitter meme or in a political argument about the elections or in a family conversation about, you know, how to spend money. Um, so the, the, li- the social life of these different kinds of economic numbers that I think make play such a huge role in everyday life in, in Argentina and Buenos Aires because of the political economic dynamics that are particular to that place. Um, but that maybe also hopefully sheds some light on some of these broader questions and themes that we've all already been discussing um, about futurity and historical sensibilities. And that hopefully also says something to more comparatively to the role that numbers and metrics play in everyday life, you know, beyond, you know, my specific field site. So um, you know, there's been so much good work in like science and technology studies and the, the production of metrics and numbers of uh, me- measurements of various kinds. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to, you know, draw on that and think about um, think about these things as they circulate in far more kind of banal contexts. And I like one thing I keep coming back to kind of along those lines is just thinking about how. I don't know about you, but like during the kind of height of the pandemic, you know, every day I would open my computer and go to the news and see like, what were the numbers? What were the numbers in my county, in the next county, in my grandmother's county? What was the difference day over day? What was the percentage? You know, all of these things became like played such a big role, I think, in a lot of our lives and the ways we made like everyday decisions. Like, do I go to the grocery store? Do I not? Do I, you know, do I mask? Do I not? Do I think it's okay to send my kid to school or not? 
so anyway, just thinking about what these what numbers like this are 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 doing and how we relate to them and how they come to take on the significance that they do and how that shapes public discourse and and politics and, and things like that. So I'm hoping that that's what I'm working toward. Yeah, that is so exciting. And hopefully when that book is out, we can have you back in the podcast. But for now, <laughs> for now, thank you very much, Sarah, for joining us and for your insights. Oh, thank you so much, Elisa. It's been really, really fun. I'm so honored. Thank you. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of Routine Crisis, an Ethnography of Disillusion, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.